Welcome to Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public demand and abandoned media. I am Christopher, and with me, as always, is a woman that I don't mind, Lydia. <laughs> That's high praise indeed. I wish you'd stop saying that. <laughs> hey, Lydia, how are you? Welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here, as always. <laughs> uh, welcome back to our listeners. Thank you very much for tuning in to us. Uh, hopefully you got us from one of our, uh, let's see, either iTunes or Stitcher Radio, which is two places you can find us. And as soon as Google gets their act together and actually gets their Google Play podcast thing going, uh, we have been accepted to that library. Whenever they decide to publish it, <laughs> uh, we'll be there. Speaking of iTunes, we got a new review for Ooh. Orphan Entertainment, and I wanted to share that with yes, us. please. A, uh, a fairly new, I think, podcaster, uh who goes by Court Psyops, who does the Cinema Psyops podcast, is what I've been listening to. We've kind of connected. You know, the podcasters is a uh, – we, we network. <laughs> <laughs> so he actually – his uh, his handle is a Chaos Dwarf. I do know that this is him. He wrote a nice review for us. He gave us five stars. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. And he says, uh, just because it's in the public domain doesn't mean it isn't any good. <laughs> but then again, how can you know without watching it first? Well, this podcast. Oh, I hadn't. I just assumed people were watching along, but that's a really <laughs> good point. <laughs> yeah. uh, they will go over one movie per show and give you a great discussion and historical perspective. Check them out. So, Court or you know, Chaos Dwarf, whichever you prefer there. Thank you very much. That was very kind of you. Thank you. you. Cinema Psyops is an interesting podcast. I've, I've enjoyed it. I think you're up to like episode 14 or 15 now. Uh, him and his co-host, Matt, uh, do the kind of the same thing, except not public domain. They they look at more of the, um, I think Court describes it, they look at movies that if you watch at too young of an age can kind of mess you up a little bit. <laughs> Oh, so those you know, I think I think I think the tagline of the podcast is something like um, you know physical scars heal cinema scars are forever. <laughs> wow, and also remarkably true. <laughs> yeah, apparently Court saw a lot of horror films when he was in the you know ten, eleven, twelve, maybe even sometimes a little bit younger. I thought I had a very um, non. Um, <laughs> Very non-hovering exposed parent, upbringing. exposed uh, <laughs> upbringing on television, but I had nothing on this guy. So, <laughs> oh, and I'm I'm flat out the opposite. <laughs> we were so sheltered. <laughs> uh, that was the word I was looking for. Sheltered. Yes, I was. Yeah, the opposite of sheltered. I thought, but yeah, apparently there's. You can even be even looser. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a podcast worth checking out. They have a lot of fun. The two of them. Uh, watching these movies and, and giving their thoughts on them. It's, it's a good time. So cinema psyops. So check those, those guys out. If you want to provide any uh, feedback or uh, comments, you can do that on the iTunes or Stitcher or email us at orphan entertainment at gmail.com or join our Facebook group. Uh, just go to the uh, facebook.com and search for orphan entertainment. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel where you will get a posting of all the movies that we review. So there's a, easy place to find any film you're looking for. I try to find a, a decent enough copy that's you know worth watching. But I think that's about it. That's all the little housekeeping or anything that I had. So I think we'll take a short little break and then when we come back, we'll start today's show. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. 
and this is the Saturday B Movie Reel. Shoot it! Shoot it! <laughs> That's about describes it. Yeah. All right, everybody, stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones, the ones that air on Saturday night. Be known throughout the ages as an instant classic. <laughs> we need a bigger gator. A uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from <laughs> flying limbs. I called them. it in my notes. What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since there've been over two hundred of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. At this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. Our future depends on it. Make it safe. All right, folks, welcome back. All right, as we discussed last month, we wanted to start looking into more of the pre-code films. So this month, I thought it would be a good idea to kind of give a little history, a little backstory about what pre-code means. And I thought the, kind of the best way to do that is also give some history of what the uh, of the code mm-hmm. and how it came to be. Now, pre-code, pre-code Hollywood uh, generally refers to an era in the uh, American film industry between 1929 and the enforcement of the Motion Picture Protection Code uh, censorship guidelines in 1934. So we got about a five-year span that's kind of generally regarded as pre-code, although I guess anything prior to 1934 <laughs> would be pre-code, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Technically. <laughs> right, films in the late 1920s and early 1930s included a lot of sexual innuendos some profanity, illegal drug use, prom- uh, promiscuity, prostitution, infidelity, abortion, intense violence, and homosexuality. You know, all the fun stuff. <laughs> Uh, strong female characters in films such as Female, Babyface, and Redheaded Woman were pretty common. And gangsters in films like The Public Enemy, Little Caesar, and Scarface were seen by many as heroic rather than uh, evil. In 1922, after some risque films and a series of off-screen scandals involving some of the stars, the studios enlisted William H. Hayes to kind of rehabilitate Hollywood's image. Hayes, later nicknamed the motion picture czar, was paid a sum of $100,000 a year, which would be the equivalent to more than $1.5 million wow. uh, in today's money. That's a lot of money for then. Uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Hayes was the postmaster general under Warren Harding and the former head of the Republican National Committee, and he served for 25 years as president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America where he, quote-unquote, defended the industry from attacks, recited soothing nostrums, and negotiated treaties to cease hostilities. Hayes introduced a set of recommendations dubbed The Formula in 1924. Some of the things found in the Hayes Formula that should be avoided on screen include uh, dealing with sex in an improper manner, uh, making vice seem attractive, exhibit any kind of nakedness was not allowed, Uh, You shouldn't have any prolonged, passionate love scenes. The film shouldn't be predominantly concerned with the underworld. It should in no way make gambling or drunkenness attractive or instruct the weak in methods of committing crime. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What about the strong? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do not uh, ridicule public officials or offend religious beliefs. Now, I think it's interesting, too, to mention that these were guidelines. These were suggestions that they're saying that the filmmakers should follow so their films wouldn't need to be outright censored. 
So the, the argument for a lot of this was, oh, if you do this, we won't have to censor it because no one wants to censor the film. But honestly, isn't this sort of pre-censoring? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, people were kind of really splitting their hairs and kind of uh, muddying the waters when this stuff came around. In 1929, Martin Quigley, editor of the prominent trade paper Motion Picture Herald, and Father Daniel A. Lord, a Jesuit priest. Wow, good name for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey. Do you think he planned that? <laughs> yeah. Some, some things you're just born it's like for. Like doctor, you know? doctor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He created a code and submitted it to the studios. Lord's concern centered on the effects film had on children who he whom he considered especially susceptible to their allure. Several studio heads, including Irving Thalberg of uh, MGM, met with Lord and Quigley in February 1930, and after a few revisions, they agreed to the stipulations of the code. This production code had three guiding general principles. No picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. <laughs> well, for some people, that's not a problem. <laughs> Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Oh, my. Uh, correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented. Bl and law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. So they're not allowed to present a scene of somebody living in squalor. Unless it actually played in some way important to the plot. Interesting. Correct. What, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I'm just like that. That's kind of a that's an interesting one to throw in there. Let's pretend everybody has somewhere nice to live unless it's important to the plot. Well, and I think it's exactly what it was. I mean, they were looking that I, these people thought that the film should be escapist, uh, you know, entertainment. And so actually shining a light on any actual problems that these people may actually mm. be asked to try to solve. <laughs> it was a no, no. It was yeah. a CYA. That's what it was. <laughs> Specifics were given as quote unquote, particular applications of these principles, which included nudity and subjective dances were prohibited. Uh, again, ridicule of religion was forbidden. Uh, and ministers of religion were not to be re represented as comic characters or villains. Let's see, depiction of illegal drug use was forbidden, as well as liquor. Quote, unquote, when not required by the plot or for proper characterization. <laughs> References to alleged sex perversion, sex is sex, such as homosexuality, and venereal disease were forbidden, as were depictions of childbirth. Murder scenes had to be filmed in a way that would discourage imitations in real life, and brutal killings could not be shown in detail. Thus, the shadows on the walls. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sanctity of marriage in the home had to be upheld. <laughs> Pictures shall not infer that low forms of sex relationship are the accepted or common thing. No. <laughs> I think that's a fancy way of saying, you know, only when you're married. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or only, only if there's something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. It's important to the plot. <laughs> Excessive and lustful kissing was to be avoided, along with any other treatment that might, quote-unquote, stimulate the lower and baser elements. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that in real life as well. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I hate seeing that Ugh, in film. Yeah, oh. Ugh, people kissing. <laughs> 
Now, the thing is, at this point, these were all, as I said, guidelines. They weren't any kind of laws. They weren't rules. It was they were trying to pressure the studios and the filmmakers to follow these guidelines. And their argument was to prevent, like I said, it taking any action towards them. Uh, by February uh, 1930, Variety magazine published the entire contents of the code. The men obligated to enforce the code, Jason Joy, was the head of the committee until 1932, and his successor, Dr. James Win- Wingate, found it to be an uphill battle, and the individual state review board still had final say. So even though Hollywood would sit there and try to follow these guidelines, it was a state-by-state basis, they could actually still censor the films. The very first film that this office reviewed, The Blue Angel, was passed by Joy without revision, but was considered indecent by California censors. And there was many, uh, several instances where Joy negotiated cuts from films. Uh, but even then, uh, a significant amount of what would be considered lurid material made it to the screen. Mm-hmm. The poor guy had to review 500 films a year Holy using a very God. small staff and little actual power. Uh, the Hayes office did not have the authority to order studios to remove material from a film, but instead worked by reasoning and sometimes pleading with them to do so. Holy cow. Uh, the appeals process ultimately put the responsibility for making the final decision in the hands of the studios themselves. So despite all of this pleading and negotiating, it was really still up to the studio whether they were going to cut and edit the film. <laughs> Now, along comes the Great Depression in, 19, in the 1930s. Now, many studios, of course, were looking for any income they could find because there wasn't a lot to be had. And as it turns out, films containing racy and violent content uh, resulted in higher ticket sales. So they often just went ahead and made the films as they saw fit. The code became a little bit of a laughingstock at this point because no one followed it. It, it became almost a joke how studios would blatantly go against it. So this kind of caused the 1933 formation of the Catholic Legion of Decency. Now, when you know, you, when you throw those three words together <laughs> in anything. Lord help us. <laughs> <laughs> this group issued its own classifications of films and forbade members from seeing films it marked as Class C for Condemned. This organization grew and actually got a little bit of power and actually was able to lobby the government. Now, Joseph Breen, a Catholic who'd been working as a troubleshooter for Hayes in 31, assumed the, uh, being the head of the production code office in 34. And he used his closeness to the Legion and the exploiting the fear of the studio heads. He negotiated that all films had to receive the motion picture production code seal of approval before they could be released or suffer protests and fines. So the absolute final date of, or end of the pre-code Hollywood is July 1st, 1934, where mandatory censorship occurred after that time. So that is what kind of developed it into what is now the MPAA. Although certainly some, um, some things have been laxed. And I think actually technically now even the MPAA is... Uh, voluntary <laughs> based on at least one of the films I saw last weekend yes <laughs> it is okay. <laughs> uh, films can be released from the studios not rated by the motion picture association but they have an uphill battle getting those films into the multiplexes mm-hmm. so that so while it's not mandatory 
most studios do indeed go through it just because that's the only way that they're going to get their film to an audience. Unless they can go indie. Unless they go indie. But like I said, if they go indie, you don't get them. Exactly. You don't tend to get the multiplexes. Well, yeah, right. you can't get into Walmart, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. But. <laughs> just but? You didn't have anything? Okay. That's it. Just but, dot, dot, dot. Okay. <laughs> There wasn't anything in this particular uh, synopsis that I gave, but I also believe there was some overseas pressure because uh, it was actually there was some pressure from Britain and uh, other European countries that felt some of the films coming over from the States were getting a little too risque for their taste. Well, that's definitely still an issue. Um, mm-hmm. it, when when I was uh, living overseas, they released the latest version of Pride and Prejudice. And actually, at the end, they the characters are married. Uh, sorry, guys, spoiler. Uh, the characters are married, but in India they still India and Nepal they still cut the end scene because there's a kiss in it, and the actors are not oh, married right. to each other. So, exactly. so it's definitely it, there's still a lot of scrutiny from overseas. So it would definitely make sense for there to be some uh, back in this age. Exactly. Well, yeah. Even in the 1930s, there was overseas dollars to be had. And the studios didn't want to cut themselves off from you know that little uh, that bit of that bit of profit. So there was some overseas pressure, especially when it comes. I think there's even more uh, going on when you start talking about when you get into some of the horror films and stuff <laughs> at the time that were going over. They were getting way too disturbing for the uh, you know the proper British folk. <laughs> there are some disturbing some disturbing movies that have come out you know during this era. Surprisingly disturbing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, even if you if you think about it, the original Dracula and Frankenstein would be considered pre-code films. Mm-hmm. And there was um, several edits done to those before they got major releases, even just certain lines taken out, some of which have been restored and, and, and current. Like in Frankenstein, uh, just the, the one line when the uh, Dr. Frankenstein, after he, he, he brings his monster to life, he, you know, he screams, it's alive, it's alive, and he turns and says, now I know th- yeah. what it feels like to be God. Very famous. Mm-hmm. And that line was excised from the film or covered over with a thunderclap yeah. uh, before it saw major release. And it wasn't restored until, I think, maybe within the last decade mm-hmm. or so. Uh, and it, just because they thought that was you know heretical. Mm. Oh, yeah, very so yeah, it's all, all very interesting stuff, and it, certainly it's it's a history that's worth looking into in more detail. What I gave was probably a horrible history. <laughs> not to apologize. Well, it is when you know and and, li- and lifted a lot from the internet. Uh, don't <laughs> don't call me out on it. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is interesting too when you know the details and you go into those, especially the the films. I think that were released shortly after the code first came into prevalence. It's just so it's so fun to go through and see how they work around it. You know, there are just so many movies where, you, you know, there, there are comments that you miss if you only see it one time. But going back and seeing it again and again, you can really tell how they're working around all this code. So um, it's it's definitely worth knowing the history and worth looking at it and doing some comparison. Some of these films will still have this little thing on the front, you know, before the actual you have to get it censored uh, thing came out that says it's approved by this office mm-hmm. or whatever. But as you can see, they, this office was negotiating going, you know, okay, well, <laughs> you cut this, you can have this. And, you know, okay. It, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's such a trip. 
All right, well, we should probably talk about the film that we're going to talk about today, which is a considered a pre-code film. It, the film is called Of Human Bondage, which sounds a lot like uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, but it's not quite that bad. <laughs> How did you know that's what I watched? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the meaning of this, uh, the title of this film is a little differently than what uh, I think our 21st century minds might immediately go to. It's <laughs> more a uh, spiritual and emotional bondage than uh, uh, very much. more very recently much. become popular. <laughs> very much. I only really wanted to point out one particular uh, actor in this film. This would be Betty Davis. This was her first critically acclaimed film. She had done several films prior, but this is the first one that really got, uh, garnered some attention for her. Uh, Miss Davis began her acting on the stage, as many do at the time, uh, actually starting out as a chorus girl and eventually making her way to Broadway, uh, making her debut in 1929's Broken Dishes. 1930, she traveled to L.A. to screen test for Universal. It didn't start out terribly well and was very close to being sent home after failing screen test after screen test. It was uh, cinematographer Carl Freund who convinced Carl LeMay to hang on to her as, she, as he thought she had lovely eyes and that she would be suitable for a film that they were putting together for 1931 called The Bad Sister, and she made her uh, debut in that film. But it was less than successful. Eventually, Universal did terminate her contract. Again, she's pretty much ready to pack up and return to New York when actor George Arliss chose Davis for the lead female role in a Warner Brothers picture called The Man Who Played God. Uh, for the rest of her life, uh, Betty Davis would credit him with helping her achieve her break in Hollywood. Warner Brothers and uh, ended up signing her to a five-year contract, and she remained with the studio for the next 18 years. After nearly 20 films, it was the film of human bondage that gave Davis her first critical acclaim. While other actresses shied away from playing the kind of unsympathetic character, Davis seemed to revel in it. She felt it allowed her to show the range of her skills. Life magazine wrote that she gave, quote-unquote, probably the best performance ever recorded on the screen by a U.S. actress. <laughs> They were quite pleased with her. And we will get into that when we get into this film, too. This is really cool. I didn't know this bit of trivia about this film, but I thought this was really neat. When Betty Davis was not nominated for an Academy Award for, of Human Bondage, the Hollywood Citizen News questioned uh, the omission, and Norma Shearer, herself a nominee, joined a campaign to have Davis nominated. Wow. The Academy president, Howard Estabrock, Esther Brooke, I think, uh, said that under the circumstances, any voter may write on the ballot his or her personal choice for the winners. Claudette Colbert won the award for It Happened One Night, but the uproar led to a change in Academy voting procedures the following year, whereby nominations were determined by votes from all eligible members of a particular branch rather than by a smaller committee. So there you go. This film changed the way the Academy Awards uh were not, uh, yeah, the Academy Award nominated uh, the actors and actresses. That is very I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, very interesting and very neat. Well, from there, her career stretches practically all the way until her death in 1989. She accumulated like 125 credits for film and television, uh, which included 10 Academy Award nominations, 11 if you count her write-in noms for, in 1933. <laughs> 
and two award wins, one for 1935's Dangerous and the other for 1938's Jezebel. Fantastic filmography for Betty Davis. Um, I think everyone knows a Betty Davis film in one way or another. Mm -hmm. I think I was first introduced to Betty Davis actually through, uh, there was the Disney film, I think it was, Watcher in the Woods. She kind of helped freak the crap out of me, a a young (laughs) kid, with that one. I always think of All About Eve. Okay. See? Everyone's got their Betty Davis film. (laughs) Oh, another uh, kid's flick was... um, Return to Witch Mountain. I believe her and uh, Christopher Lee were uh, a couple really? good, no good nooks in that one. Not yeah. one I saw. Told you I was very, very sheltered. She's She is in Death on the Nile, but you don't think of her in it primarily, which is interesting because I, I just never, I don't know. She I, I suppose I always think of her as a younger woman, and that was in late 70s, so she was older in it. <laughs> Yeah, I will admit, most of my Betty Davis, uh, most of the films that I know Betty Davis for was actually towards the, probably going to 70s and 80s, uh, towards the end of her career. Mm-hmm. And I've actually seen very few, and I'm certainly, certainly this is the earliest I've seen her in, or I guess that's true for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I have not seen a lot of her earlier works. And honestly, after seeing her in this, and we'll get into this, I'm kind of more interested in just seeing some of her early stuff, stuff through the 30s and 40s. Well, she, we should start talking about the film, yeah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, now that I've babbled on. And <laughs> no, that's okay. Hey, For those I of have... you that have stayed with the podcast, <laughs> here we go. Well, we all know that I geek out on guys occasionally, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's fair to go. let you go on a little bit. <laughs> well, in the film, we start off in Paris, where we meet a struggling artist, Philip. Philip uh, is on the streets of Paris and decides to get some advice from a, another artist or a critic that he's, that he comes across. I couldn't, his, wasn't sure which one. Yeah. What he I was. actually believe it's his instructor, his, uh, his art instructor. Oh, possibly. Okay. Well, the gentleman, uh, he takes him to a studio, which isn't too far away. And he is told by the man that poor Philip will not, will never be anything more than a mediocre artist. Have you any money? A little, not enough to live on. Then I must tell you, there is no talent here, merely industry and intelligence. You will never be anything but mediocre, and it is very cruel to discover one's mediocrity only when it is too late. I know. Do you see that? That name does not belong there. It belongs somewhere else. Take your courage in both your hands and make something of your life. What I love about this particular scene, I love the logic behind it. He says, you know, it's it's better for you to know now than to look back when it's too late to do anything. And then he says, trust me, I know. Oh, <laughs> you yeah, know, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's interesting to... Yeah, that I might actually add to the idea of him being some sort of instructor or something, because mm-hmm. he's probably, that may be, he's like, you know, I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm saving or you. Or even from, yeah. I myself really am, you know, those who can't do teach. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Philip feeling that his club foot uh, provides some limitations on what he can do, decides to go into medicine. His father was a doctor, so figures if he can't... Uh, how did he put it? If he can't be... If he can't be great, he might as well do something good for mankind. Something like that. Exactly. Something useful, right. And I don't write down quotes because I don't need to. <laughs> no, you're good, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a curse. <laughs> well, he takes a farewell look at Paris, 
and that fades and brings us into London. During and we see him, he's apparently at Saint Bartha Saint Bartholomew Hospital. Bartholomew is hard to get my tongue around. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, there it is. During a sort of uh, teaching slash examination session, looks like they're actually allowing people in off the streets, and they're using that as a learning experience. They're diagnosing their their ills. Uh, Philip is kind of called out by a rather rude doctor or professor there. Uh, they're looking at a young boy who happens to also have a club foot, but he decides that they, oh, this kid's club foot isn't that bad and not that interesting and decides, hey, Philip, I bet you you're a more interesting case. You don't mind showing it off, do you? Philip was not comfortable with this. Yeah, and it, I mean, this, there's so oh, sorry. There's so much going on here in my brain. I, it, mm-hmm. One big thing to note about this is this is a charity hospital. So yes, people come here who can't afford to go, you know, pay right. for a specialist. But this is also where young doctors. It's not like now where you know you go and you act as. I mean, this is the internship of that day. So it, so I kind of love though they do this this transposition that's not the word i want but they do this showing of these parallels where leslie howard's character philip starts talking to this boy and he says you know he's just really gentle and kind and i think up until now we may not have even known that philip had a club foot um but no no he showed it to his uh to the instructor the guy in paris because that part (laughs) yeah because he says well i have he he points it out and says i have my limitations Mm -hmm. and he, he shows them that you know he's got the big like uh orthopedic shoe right. on so there so he's talking to this boy though and he's being you know very gentle and the the instructing physician the head doctor there says oh you're you're just taking too long get out of the way and we'll i'll just teach it you know it but i love how kind of coarse and and brusque that the other doctor is he really shows you that philip's character is this real gentle artistic soul and they even comment on it later in the movie you know that he's not he's not manly like a lot of guys are. <laughs> no, that the 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 teaching doctor was well. Frankly, he was an ass. The the, the scene opens with him talking with this woman who's got this cough, and oh, they call it a winter cough. Uh, many middle aged women get it. And she's like, "Whoa, I've never been called middle aged before." Well, you better get used to it. <laughs> like, Jerk. <laughs> I, I thought that was funny. No, I oh, thought that was, was hilarious, but... personally. <laughs> now, see, it's... it's hysterical, but uh, it's rude. <laughs> As a woman, I'm allowed to laugh at that. I can say that, too. <laughs> say that would get me slapped. What? Huh? Exactly. <laughs> well, a little later, I think uh, Philip and a couple other students are in uh, Philip's room. He's kind of showing off some of his uh, paintings and, and artwork and sketches that he did at Paris. They're commenting about how you left this <laughs> to to come and study medicine? Are you crazy? Uh, one thing that I that it's worth noting about this scene in particular, and which you know, as we're discussing a pre-code movie, definitely applies, is the majority of his paintings are nudes, and yeah. they're not not all of. I mean, they're artistically modest, but they're very clearly nudes. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. there's no you know modest draping or anything like that. Yeah, I think the the largest one that you can really see any detail is sort of the the, the, the sort of the backside is turned. Yes, but you so you can't see any 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 frontal. You can't see any uh, breasts, and even most of the uh, of the of the butt is it's just a cheek. Yes, yeah, it's I definitely suppose. artistic, um, yes. but it, there's also no uh, 
and there are no togas or anything like that. Right. <laughs> no leaves. <laughs> nope. Well, fellow student and friend asks Philip to come with him to be his, uh, pretty much be, to be his wingman. He's got his eye on a, a waitress down at a cafe down the street, and he wants uh, Philip's. He, he he can't bring up the nerve himself to talk to this girl, so he's hoping Philip can maybe kind of be the uh, the icebreaker, say something funny, get her talking. Well, this is the first time we see young Mildred, played by Betty Davis, and while she seems to be having a pretty good time with another patron in in the cafe, we'll find out that his name is Miller. We don't find that out until much later in the film, but I, I wanted to point out that this was very cool. Uh, fans of Gilligan's Island are, of course, familiar with Alan Hale Jr., who played the skipper. Mm-hmm. This man is Alan Hale Sr., his father. Very cool. I thought, oh, that's fun. Has <laughs> he ever wanted to know what the skipper would look like with, like, mutton chops? And, uh... <laughs> and a German accent. <laughs> yeah, this, this is it. Well, she comes over to wait on Philip and his friend, and she's immediately rude to Philip <laughs> and this guy. Uh, but for some reason, Philip kind of just becomes immediately enamored with her. I love how they break into this scene. His buddy asks him, what do you think of her? And he goes, I think she's anemic. Like just straight out, (laughs) right out of the gate. He's just like, oh, she's gross. You know, he goes, he goes through this, you know, just Mm -hmm. kind of needling her almost because it's obvious she has this attitude straight off. As they are getting up to leave, well, as they're about to leave, um, his friend says, wow, yeah, I, I'm so glad you pointed out, you know, I can't believe she was so rude to you and she's horrible and I'm not interested in any, her anymore. Let's get out of here. To which Philip replies, uh, I think I'm going to stay and have another cup of tea. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah>, <laughs> and uh, and proceeds to, once his friend is gone, hit on Mildred. Well, some time passes or it may have just been the, uh, the next day. It's This film uh, makes jumps in time that I, I've, I had a hard time figuring out only only once or twice did you actually know how much, or at least a little bit of how much time had passed from one uh, scene to another sometimes. But he returns to the cafe, and while he waits for Mildred to come over to the table, he uh, he does a quick sketch of her. Which apparently only took ten minutes to do that sketch. <laughs> one of the times where you actually know the amount of time. <laughs> yes, they, actually, they point it out. Because he finally... Uh, you know, bangs the knife against the, uh, the the creamer jar or something like that, and like, oh, you in a hurry? I've been waiting ten minutes. She, and she, yeah, she's over there flirting with the other guy the whole time. Exactly. I have to point out though, and I'm I I know this is just going to drive you nuts. This is one of the worst Hackney accents I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it's her accent drove me crazy because it's so inconsistent. So mm. uh, definitely, Betty Davis is not British, and Ew. once you see this movie, you can tell. Well, she did seem slightly impressed with the sketch, and she agrees to go out to dinner with Philip. Uh, I think she tells her to meet at a station at the second-class waiting area at some one of the local uh, train stations. Yeah, exactly. Well, we see Philip, and he's waiting a while uh, at the second-class waiting area, and waits and he waits and finally decides to go off and search for her and lo and behold she's waiting in the first class the waiting room uh, Mildred explains that they, well this is where a proper lady would wait right again, right off the bat you get the feeling that she is really playing games with this poor guy I'm just shaking my head <laughs> you can't see it but I'm just shaking my head <laughs> <laughs> Over dinner, Philip tries his best to uh, 
to chat Mildred up and even order champagne to <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> well, he, he's hoping that it'll make her more friendly. <laughs> <laughs> So that's why I'm trying to get you liquored up. Exactly. <laughs> On the way home, Philip asks if he could see her again, and we get her first, I don't mind, <laughs> as a response. Yeah, because, well, if he doesn't take her out, someone else will. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> every every time. And she says, uh, you know, I don't mind several times, several times. And every time she does, I, I always think of Catherine Tate saying, I ain't bothered. <laughs> like, every single time. It's exactly that class of person, you know, that that it's just that class of person that doesn't have enough respect for another person to give them a proper answer. Exactly. And she just, oh, right from the beginning, I just grind my teeth. I, mm-hmm. I mean, you're not supposed to like her, and I don't. No, <laughs> I mean, she, no, she no I don't either. She does an exceptional job making very sure that you understand that she is jerking this guy around. Uh-huh. Well, that night, Philip spends the uh, the night daydreaming. Well, can you spend the night daydreaming? He spends the night night dreaming about her. <laughs> night dreaming? He spends the night fantasizing about how he wishes the night had gone, you know, his date had gone. Uh, which includes romance and dancing and no club foot. No club. Uh, the next morning, again, I think, uh, Philip waits for Mildred outside of the cafe and walks her home. You don't seem to have much to do with your time. <laughs> I, I should be studying. And why don't you? Well, I, I'd rather see you. Any of the girls notice you're waiting for me? I don't know. Why, what difference does it make? They all laugh at you, you know. Do they? Why? Say you're in love with me. <laughs> May I call you Mildred? I don't mind. Look here, don't say that anymore, will you? Why not? Well, that's only it. I'll call you Mildred. And you call me Philip, will you? I think of it. I, um... I'm a little awkward at this, but will you kiss me goodnight? No. Oh, Mildred, will you come to the theater with me on Saturday? I don't mind. So Philip uh, goes in and buys the tickets. He goes to the cafe to see Mildred and bumps into the other patron that she's been flirting with uh, this whole time. And uh, this man suggests that uh, they should know each other a little better since they're obviously after the same thing. And this is the part too where he says, you know, oh, you're you're too. I, I don't. I can't recall what he specifically says. Well, he pretty much just says you need to be more, and he kind of just more manly. Pumps, you know, pounds his chest. Yeah, down. exactly. He's like, oh, yeah. you're not manly enough. You need to be more manly. Yep. Yeah, I, I loved Philip. It's like, well, you know, thanks for the advice. No problem. Keep the change. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, it's it's worth noting that I really do like this character. The it's, Miller for his flaws. I enjoyed the character. Which one, Philip or Miller? Well, I loved the, yeah. I loved Leslie Howard. You didn't see much of him. You yeah. didn't, but um, but even so, I felt like he was almost comic relief, which yeah, I bit. felt heavily needed in this movie. <laughs> I really needed a little more comic relief. <laughs> well, in the cafe, uh, Philip goes in and sits down. Mildred comes and waits on him, and uh, Mildred drops the bomb on him that oh she can't. Ma- I forgot to tell you, yeah, she can't make it. She she can't go to the show, so the tickets are wasted. Well, Saturday night, uh, the night that Mildred canceled out on, uh, Philip goes creepy stalker-like <laughs> and lurks around the cafe. 
Of course, Mildred spots him and confesses that she is waiting for the other man. Philip tells her that if she doesn't go out with him that night, she will never see him again. Well, it's fine by her, as she puts it, good riddance to bad rubbish. Now, if only he'd had the gumption to keep his word. Well, I think he kind of... (laughs) No, you're right. At this point, he does not, Mm -hmm. right? Philip returns to his studies while a uh, party goes on in the, uh, I guess, uh, what would you call it? The dorm or his apartment, his apartment, whatever. housing, sure. Yeah, housing, yeah. Goes on down the hall. And um, I did like he comes up the stairs and uh, uh, one of his friends or fellow students comes out and he's obviously hammered and <laughs> drink mm-hmm. you know it's philip just kind of does the shake and then a then a girl comes in from underneath this guy's arm and she's obviously wasted too and the guy looks at him and says desire <laughs> 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 and then they go smooching off and shut the door <laughs> i think it's worth noting i believe this is the same gentleman that initially introduced him to mildred oh was it? i believe I it is sure if it was or not wasn't sure if it was or not. Because well, they, one's I mean, tall and one's short. <laughs> yeah. I believe it's the yeah. short one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so Philip tries to get back to kind of hit the books again, but he just can't help but continue to dream of Mildred. I can't understand this. I am not seeing the appeal here. There's just... I, she, I, it's not that she's unattractive. It's just that she's not phenomenal. No offense, Betty Davis, but <laughs> but she's just I, in this in the course of this movie, you meet two other women, both of who I think are remarkably more attractive and who aren't total hussy, mean biatches. That's right. that's the technical term, by the way. Hussy, mean biatch. <laughs> and so I, I and I suppose that, you know, and this will come around, but, you know, they always say it, you know, the it's always nice guys always come last and. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, the meaner you are to somebody, the more they like you. I just, I just, though I'm going, I don't, there's nothing appealing about her. There's nothing appealing about her. She's not classy. She's not exceptionally beautiful. She doesn't carry herself well. It's just. Well, just, just hold your thoughts, Lydia. <laughs> don't spend it all now because it's only going to get worse here. Oh, man. I just, but even this, even at this point in the movie, I. I, even here, I was going, I don't understand what this guy sees in this woman. And this is, you know, it's just, there's up to this point, there's nothing appealing about her, but he's just like obsessed. And it it's, I can't, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand either, but poor Philip, he, he, he's got her in her, he's got her in his head. Can't get her out. Uh, this continues right through and into his mid-year exam, where he's still fantasizing about her. Uh, Seniors to sort of magically appear in place of the uh, the, the the skeleton in the room, <laughs> which you know, it's kind of funny. He, he referred to her. I think it's at some point if there was some some skinny anemic waitress, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and he he's imagining her against the, you know, the, this, this skeleton. Exactly. Well, because of this, of course, he fails his mid-year exam. A friend offers him a beer, but Philip tells him it won't help. So, And when asked, well, what would help? Well, a knowing glance from Philip later, we find him having dinner again with Mildred. Sap. <laughs> yeah. Well, this time he does at least manage to get, steal a kiss goodnight uh, when, the, when he walks her home. 
And this is all it takes for Philip to buy a ring, despite his friend's warnings. His friends tried. Why? Why? You know, what kind of practice do you hope to have with with a woman like that as your wife? (laughs) This is what they tell him. I have to give him kudos Um, for that, though. I mean, this guy is he he's not just messing around, you know, and and (laughs) he clearly is believing the best possible thing about her. (laughs) Yeah, he obviously sees something we don't. Yes. So over again at their favorite uh, dinner spot, he tries to uh, propose to her, and then her, Mildred is good with dropping the bombs. I want you to marry me. I'm so sorry, Philip. That's just what I was about to tell you. I shouldn't have waited so long. Fact is, I'm going to be married. Are you? To whom? A man I know. He earns very good money. Yes, I'm I'm sure of it. Now you won't go on about it, will you, Philip? All right. I'm getting on. 24. It's time I settle down. Gentleman earns seven pounds a week. He's got good prospects. Well, this is goodbye. I, I hate to eat and run, Philip, but... Well, I have an engagement. I'm going to the theater with the gentleman I'm going to marry. Well, doing this stalker thing again, Philip uh, keeps watch at the theater because she has to leave. She has to eat and run. You know, don't go all on about it. I got, you know, sorry about this. See you later. I got to go to the theater with my fiance. <laughs> so Philip hangs out at the theater and he, of course, spots the uh, cafe patron that we've been seeing and Mildred as they leave the theater. Mildred Miller. That would be a heck of a name. Oh, it would. Amen. <laughs> Back in Phillips's apartment, Philip's apartment, you know, friends, he's putting the his sketch of, or his, his a, a drawing of Mildred in the drawer, and his friend tells him like, "Well, you know what a cure for a woman is, another, another woman." woman. <laughs> now, and at this point, I I did expect him to kind of, you know, kind of knuckle down, I suppose, and and study so that he can make enough money to get Mildred to like him because he's going to be a doctor. Right, you think. You would think. But what does happen in the film is we jump into the middle of a great relationship with another woman <laughs> named Nora. Nora is a, success, a successful author writing for a romance magazine uh, called, what was it, Flaming Love? I, I, could, I can't recall. I believe it was called Flaming Love. It was sort of a thing of like a, I got the impression it was kind of like a Harlequin romance of its time sort of thing. Nora, you don't read such junk, do you? No, I write it. What? That's how I earn my living. I didn't know. Successful? Very. I have an immense popularity amongst kitchen maids. They think me so refined. (laughs) (laughs) Nora and Philip's relationship is fantastic. It seems great. I mean, they are healthy. They are loving. They are supportive of each other. It's a great relationship. She keeps saying, no, we're not going out. You know, she's not a gold digger. She's not just trying to get money and presents from him. She's like, no, you need to stay here and study. I love her. She's She's adorable. She's fantastic. I want it. I was like, I was like, okay, I'm done watching the movie with Betty Davis. I want to see a movie with Philip and Nora and I want to see them live their lives and have fun, make a romantic comedy called Philip and Nora. (laughs) (laughs) 
this relationship is just too good. Uh, you can't just have that, not in this movie. No, Mildred shows back oh. up. She says that she's been left by the man, and she's pregnant. This is another one of these things where I'm uncertain of how much time has passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the relationship, we, we don't see how Philip meets Nora. We jump right into Obviously, they kind of, we skip the part where they're sort of friends and casually dating <laughs> to the part where they Are very admit that they, about each other. they're very serious about each other. Exactly. Well, Philip tries to confront Miller, who he assumes is the, the man that Mildred married and is the father of this child. And it turns out that, no, it, it isn't him. He's, he's already married. He's been married. He, he's got a picture of his, of his wife and what looks to be probably like a 12-year-old daughter or something exactly. like that. Do you think he's the father of the child it, or not? It wouldn't surprise me. I, he does say we're after the same thing. And I think that it, in that way, it kind of shows that he's a more base character and that Philip's ideals are far above his. I, I don't think Philip is looking at people as real people. I mean, obviously he's holding her up on a pedestal. And so in thinking of Miller as being this horrible, you know, <laughs> villain, but the reality is actually probably very much the opposite. Well, after uh, several attempts to trying to reach Philip by mail, Nora decides to actually drop in and visit. Uh, Philip, being the idiot that he is, <laughs> uh, breaks it off with Nora, admits that Mildred is back. And that that calls for a dun-dun-dun. I mean, uh, it should have, at that point, if she was a smart woman, she should have just grabbed him by his collar and given him a good shake. <laughs> What's yeah. wrong with Are you stupid? You, yeah, you already exactly. told me how horrible she was. Why didn't why did she not fight for this for for him at all? Because uh, she it, is a wise person. You cannot have someone love you can't force somebody to love you and if he is stuck on this other girl, there's nothing she can do. She does admit. She says I I've, I've always known that I've loved you more than you've loved mm-hmm. me. Um so, yeah, I mean, yeah, do you really want someone that's that got his own baggage, I guess? Mm-hmm. I, mm. Well, here's another time jump. Mildred has the baby. Uh, she goes from not showing it all to finally having the baby. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and then, and she's, again, she's just so horrid. She's looking at the baby. It's laying there next to her, and she goes, oh, it's a funny-looking thing, ain't it? You know, yeah. I can't believe it's mine. It's, <laughs> it, a, in that horrible accent, which we'll try and overlook. But B, I mean, she's just, this is just, she's unnatural. She's just unnatural. <laughs> Give the impression at this point, too, there, he's at the bedside of, apparently, you know, he's he's gone. He's been with her for you know, nine months, apparently, uh, supporting her, helping her out, paying for all of this. Definitely. One of one of one of them say that you know it's all it's all going to be different from here on, and they have a very passionate, a very you know a kiss, and they're holding hands at the at the bed with the baby in her arms. Um, so they're obviously gives the impression they're in some sort of relationship. But then another little time jump where they're back home, and she's pretty much handing the baby off to be cared for by somebody else. I wasn't sure if. At first, I thought she was actually handing it off like an adoption, but yeah. I get the impression this was just a, just you got to take care of it so I can boarding go work. School, kind of, I suppose, yeah. Uh, effectively, a boarding school, but for infants. Yeah, exactly. Philip, in a very confusing move, decides to invite a friend over. Uh, Griffith is the guy's last name, uh, because apparently they've met and had uh, you know dinners and stuff with him before, and it's obvious that. 
Mildred finds him funny. It, he makes her laugh, and you know Philip wants her to, to be happy. And it's immediately apparent to like everyone, including Philip, frankly, that Mildred likes this guy a lot. Mm-hmm. And they have a great old time at dinner uh, at the expense of poor Philip. And on the way home, Philip asks Griffiths if he's in love with Mildred. With Griffith, of course, claims that she means absolutely nothing to him. She, they're just having fun. It's all okay. Well, the next day, he asks Mildred the very same question. Uh, well, she shows off a new dress, which I have to admit, she fills nicely. <laughs> and which, of course, it's worth noting that Philip bought for her. Maybe this was a little little bit of the pre-code thing or whatever. They do linger on her backside a little as they pan up, and it is a form-fitting dress. I have to admit, I didn't notice. <laughs> really? Well, Not super surprising, considering my personal bent. <laughs> yeah. Kind of know where I, where I look. Okay. <laughs> like to read a letter I got from him this morning? I've been up all night thinking about you. And I've just sent for a special messenger who will take this to you in the dawn. You've no notion of the time I had with with your friend last night. He kept asking me if I love you, and of course, what could I say? He'll doubtless tell you all this, so I'm making sure that you... Well, I can't help it if I love him, can I? No, I suppose not, but... Then what's you going on about? Nothing. Only I was fool enough to think that you cared for me. I do, Philip. As a friend. Not in any other way. But you do care for Griffiths in the other way. But you're... you're rather cold. That... that sort of thing doesn't mean anything to you. That's what you think. So, yeah, so Griffith lied to her. He loves her. I mean, he sent a special courier to get this letter to to her overnight uh, to, to confess his love for her. So Bill, poor Philip is in the friend zone. Philip actually throws all the nice things that he's done for her in her face, and she actually kind of throws it right back at him. You know, what kind of gentleman are you to be making a big deal about all these things that you've done? He actually gets uh, pretty mad at her, and he gets a good slap for it. Well, Philip actually kicks her out, and for a second time, uh, Mildred is out of his life. And this actually brings us to about the 50-minute mark of the film. And there is certainly much more to go on. There's an entirely another relationship that is quite a lot of fun. But I think I'm going to leave that to you, the listeners, to watch for yourself. And we will kind of go into some closing thoughts and stuff. And... um, yeah, I hated Mildred. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I oh, there at one point the version of this that I had downloaded it cut off, so I had to go back and and find the part that I was at. And when I did, uh, I, I still had like another twenty eight minutes, and I just was like, ah, oh, this isn't over yet. It's just torture. <laughs> and my dad is really fond of discussing Shirley Temple films. Because he hates them because he he always says you have to go through like 60 minutes of 
or 90 minutes of just misery so that you can have mm-hmm. two or three minutes of happiness at the end. And that's right. totally how I felt about this movie. Um, yeah, well, this I, one actually uh, gives you a kick in the gut because they have this wonderful moment, the, these wonderful moments when Philip and Nora, you're like, oh, it's oh, all going to be okay. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. We're only 30 minutes into the film. Where What happens? To, exactly. Oh, God. Well, and he, and I feel like, I, I know people are very fond of talking to uh, Betty Davis and, I I have no problem with any performances in this movie, but I loved Leslie Howard in it. I just, really? Okay. I, I mean, as a tortured soul, sweet guy with an artist's heart, like mm-hmm. he, I felt like he was as much as you just wanted to shake him for being a full-on idiot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but as far as uh, that's one of the things you know, if you're watching a movie and you forget that they're acting. And, and through this whole movie, at no point did I think about the set or how it was directed. It, the whole time, I was completely absorbed with the characters. So from hmm. that standpoint, I have to say that, you know, everybody did a fantastic job in this movie. Um, that's totally aside from my rating. <laughs> <laughs> it's I mean, it's worth saying that as much as I couldn't stand this relationship between Philip and Mildred, the acting was phenomenal. <laughs> uh, I would agree with you there. I think the, the, the casting choices that they made were phenomenal. I mean, you're not supposed to like Mildred. No. Betty Davis makes you hate Mildred. Uh, but, she's but, <laughs> horrible. But what I found interesting, you can't take your eyes off of her when she's on the screen. Betty Davis, I, I noticed that she makes a point. She never really stands still. She's always sort of almost maybe just rocking on her heels or kind of almost undulating in a strange way, you know, as she's standing there when she's talking and sort of, but never still. And so you, you're constantly drawn to her. And she does have this look of, like you said, she's not particularly necessarily attractive, but there's just something about her so when she is on the screen even if it's if she's the only thing on the screen you can't help but definitely her eyes you are locked into her eyes yeah but i feel that way about train wrecks so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i i'm not and i'm not i'm not saying betty davis is a train wreck but i'm saying uh, you know i think that it <sighs> I, yeah <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't want to hurt your feelings, Christopher. <laughs> uh, no, I it's is it, she's a very powerful actress. That that is how I would describe her. Um, yeah, yeah. Well no, I I'm agreeing with you. And I'm agreeing that Mildred is horrid, yeah. horrid, horrid, horrid of a person. She really is. And but it's Betty Davis that brings that that character I, that brings that through. I mean, and that's, like like I said, Betty Davis like kind of liked playing these type of characters because it allowed definitely to, began to be cast as this type. Mm-hmm. And it is because you're right; she's very good at it. Yeah, very good. She can show a lot of range. She can lot of, do a lot of things. There are times when, if it weren't for the fact that you knew that she was stringing this guy along. She would be adorable. And you're thinking, oh, I'd kind of like you. But you you know what she's doing in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe from the eyes of Philip, for whatever reason, because he can't see through it, yeah. you can see there are times when you can see why he's enamored with her. 
Right. Well, and I think at the very beginning, when you first are introduced to her, you're kind of hoping she's just this tough girl that's putting on a facade. But it mm-hmm. turns out she's just a real hag. <laughs> this may be the best example of the pre and post code differences. Is it a film 10 years, 20 years from now, that's what she would be. She would be the mean woman that would learn the error of her ways and find that she has mm-hmm. this perfect man and wants to be. Yeah, that's a, if this was if this was in 1950, you would have never seen Nora. You would have never seen the, the any other the women. Oh yeah, she would have definitely been. Nora would have been a very weak character at best, and Mildred definitely exactly. would have turned out the heroine in the end. You're absolutely correct. And and Miller would not have been painted at all as a sympathetic character. He would have been a philandering horrible person because here he is married and he's and got, playing and, around. And got his comeuppance in yes. some way even if it was in uh, some comical manner yes. he would have got his comeuppance uh-huh. and that doesn't happen at all to any of the men that she becomes involved with no not at all no they 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 all go off scot-free and put and shove whatever issues or blame onto onto mildred mm-hmm. uh griffiths i think uh is dumps her at the mm-hmm. we we actually see her i think somehow i i skipped right over um skipped over how uh, her relationship with Griffith ends is we find her crying on, on the stoop of some house and she, and Griffith is there talking to an officer length, like, look, I've moved three times and she keeps turning up, you know? Um, yeah. It's all shoved on the Mildred. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. I mean, if you're looking at that time period, that's probably accurate. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. you know, men, it was essentially impossible to prove paternity at that time and so sure. of course it's the woman that's going to suffer for it and of course it's the woman whose reputation is ruined well I look at miller even if he is the father of the child he tells he tells felber's like well i can't be concerned with some unwed you know, some unwed mother exactly you know, that's not my problem exactly. even if it is his kid it's not his problem exactly she shouldn't have gotten pregnant yeah <laughs> <laughs> So it's interesting. I mean, it's easy to, I think it would be easy to brush this off as, well, you know, this is just a, a frustrating, annoying movie, but there really is a lot more to it. And there's, you know, we we tend to look at older films a lot and see how much they, inadvertently, I think we discover how much they reflect the time. Any of the other uh, standouts or anything else you wanted to talk about? No, I, I mean, I think the big ones that we see that really reflect this pre-code era are, as you said, you know, the bad guys don't, nothing happens to them. Uh, you've got a lot of nudity, interestingly, in the art. But definitely, if this were 10 or 15 years later, none of those would have been nude portraits. Not even right. one, you know. Not and then no. you've got so much philandering going on. And, and, and I think it's interesting even how Leslie Howard's character is sort of a weak a weak character. He just has a weak, his character is very weak. Um, which again is something that I don't think you would have seen, you know, 20 years after this because you want no, the hero to be strong and admirable. And, mm-hmm. and even though it, by the end of this movie, you definitely, I gained, so, there it was one moment in particular, I was like, Ooh, yes. You know? <laughs> I, uh, and, uh, definitely jumped out at me as being a very positive moment for him. You know, you definitely still would not have seen so much weakness of character in a later film after the code. Mm-hmm. Well, then I think we should probably go ahead and uh, do some ratings, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, I think I went 
first last time. So I'm going to put you on the spot this month. I don't feel very much on the spot. <laughs> I mean, if I were to give you my knee-jerk reaction, this would get like one star. But <laughs> but mostly because, as I said, there's so much of this movie is seeing this this guy struggle with this. Gosh, I, she's just this blood-sucking kind of ridiculously selfish, horrible person, you know, and you keep hoping he's going to triumph over it and he keeps not triumphing. So, you know, my, or at my, least see her for what she is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I think now people would say, yeah, I know she's horrible, but I can't help it. I love her. But in this movie, like he doesn't even see it for yeah. way too long, I think. Um, but that's, that's more about the storyline. It's not really about the production of this movie um, from a production standpoint. I would give it a very solid three and mm-hmm. the my major reasons for score for knocking it down. Well, my the, let's go pros and cons pros on this. Obviously, as I mentioned, the acting is very strong across the board. Um, you're absolutely right. I think the casting was completely spot on. Um, I loved all of the women involved in this. I thought were perfect for their parts. Um, and, and honestly, every, every male character in this, I thought was cast just perfectly you just know Mm -hmm. who they are um you know and of course as far as the era production it's fine the big things that stood out to me are there are a few spots in it where i really couldn't tell if he was daydreaming or dreaming yeah or if it was really happening and there are a Mm -hmm. couple of times where it's actually happening but i takes a little longer for you to figure that out. So it was confusing. The, the transition from one to the other is that kind of blur fade where you're thinking, oh, he's daydreaming he's or he's dreaming. He's still and- dreaming. Exactly. Um, so I so I struggled with that, you know, largely. The But I think the biggest issue, I don't think that the problem was with the acting, but with some of the direction was a little odd. I would agree with that. Yeah. So I would I would give it a strong three. I would say this is not the worst movie you could watch that we've reviewed at all. Um, you know, there are definitely I would definitely recommend this over some, but I would add a very strong warning. This is not a happy movie. Don't watch this if you're already <laughs> feeling sad. <laughs> it's yeah, just there you go. Uh, you know, I I personally struggled with it because it's you know like like I said it's that kind of Shirley Temple pace where everything is really really horrible for a long time. And you have to struggle through a whole lot. So, uh, you know, st- strong three. Uh, I am actually right with you. Uh, I'm going to give it a three as well. A lot for the, the same reasons. Acting is incredible. I think it's where it does fall down is some of the directing and some of the choices that were made by the director. Uh, or director or editor or whoever it is that you know, decided to go the, the, the blur fade from scene to scene. Cause, yeah, like what? <laughs> When he, when he fails his exam, and oh, well, what will help? And he looks up, and he go into this blur, and then suddenly it blurs in, and there he's having dinner with um, with, with Mildred, Mildred, and you're thinking, oh, this is another, another dream daydream sequence. Exactly. Another daydream, but Mildred's her usual horrible self. Yes. Like, oh, <laughs> okay, no, wait. Wait this a minute. This is really happening then. <laughs> so this is, oh, this is, this is real, yeah. And there's another one after that, too. And it's like, well, if this is a dream, this is a, oh, this is a nightmare for this guy, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yes. Uh, it was very bizarre. There was also a couple moments when the actors would talk directly into the camera, like they're 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 projecting their lines right to the audience, but those lines are really meant for the other characters on the screen. 
So it's kind of like, well, why are you telling me? Uh, one one scene in particular. I mean, it, when it's just Philip and um, and Mildred talking to each other across the table, they'll do you know, it's just on Philip, and then yes. it's just on Mildred, and it is straight and that's, on. You're right. That is straight on, right? But the one that I that stood out to me as being odd is actually during Philip and Nora's breakup. The, the, their final scenes, they're both. It's shot from down low, shot up at them, and they're both. Philip is kind of at the desk, leaning on the desk, lo- you know, looking down, uh, obviously ashamed of what he's doing. Mildred is is down. She's saddened and Nora. telling uh, and giving Nora is giving the lines about, oh, you've, you, I knew I loved you more. And the whole time, they're both, even though they're both in frame, they're staring at us. And I thought, that seems odd. It's all, You almost feel like you're watching some weird avant-garde French yeah. film or something. I think that's a part of what was confusing as well, is you're exactly right. They would be sit, you know, Philip and Mildred would be sitting at the table, but then they'd be speaking directly in the camera. And I think that lent to me thinking it was a dream sequence <laughs> when, it, mm-hmm. when in fact, no, it was just some strange direction choices. And then, you know, of course, as you already mentioned, the whole relationship with Nora and Philip for as important of a relationship as it seemed to be to him, I felt like it was interrupted at a very strange point. Mm-hmm. Or brought in at a very introduced at a very strange point, I suppose is the way to say it. Yeah, you feel like there's another half an hour missing from this film yeah. from the time he breaks off it off with Mildred and we find ourselves with Nora. It's kind of like, wait a minute, I thought I fell asleep at first. <laughs> like, where did Nora come from? Well, and it yeah. definitely, I, again, it was a weird choice that makes you confused about the storyline. I was expecting him, I mean, she obviously seemed very interested in him, and I kept expecting him at some point to say, look, this is just a fling because of how abrupt it was, you know, mm-hmm. but, it, and it wasn't, it didn't. So it was just one of those strange time lapse, lapses, I suppose. And there was even some indication that she either knew Philip before or they, that's right. If, if, if only that horrible woman, what was her name? Oh, Mildred. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh, if only she hadn't been so mean to you, it wouldn't have taken you so long. That makes it think like, oh, he's yeah. been like friends with Nora for years. Maybe they were childhood friends. No, if they were, we never found out. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Or, I mean, who knows? And how long was he in school for? I mean, yeah. he's in school this entire movie, and it seems like it's probably at least a decade. So, um, wow. It, you know, yeah. So, yes, definitely definitely direction that that gives it a, a knockdown on some points so i'm actually surprised i expected you to just love this movie <laughs> no 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 i can't say i i love it there are there are things about it that i do love um i love i do love betty davis in this film uh because she does exactly what as i said before she does exactly what she's meant to do and she does it in a great way mm-hmm. where you are mesmerized by her and repulsed by her at the same time and i think that's exactly what is supposed to happen i have realized something in this and uh, several previous films i finally figured it out it's another film where i watched it when i did my initial watch i absolutely hated it <laughs> I was like, what the heck happened? Why did this just cut? Who is, is he dreaming? You know, I, I just, it, but what I did, I started watching it probably like at like 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And then the second time I watched it to actually sit down and take notes, I started at about eight or eight 30. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is actually really good. You know, yeah. <laughs> they did a really great job here. Oh, I like what they're doing here. I started picking out these. Other, so 
Next time, uh, next month, I'm going to try to figure out a way that I can wa- do my initial watch through earlier in the <laughs> evening. Because <laughs> yes, I've, I've recognized a pattern. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, we've done our OFL, so I think it's worth mentioning that I've already seen what we're going to review for next month. And I'm super excited about it. I am excited because <laughs> of your excitement. I know. I, you haven't even seen it yet. But it's it's one of those where I'm – it's. Uh, I'm going to warn you, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of in a grumpy movie mode, somehow. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I mean, there are movies that you just are kicking yourself the whole way through the movie. And I think that of human bondage was like that, but the one we're doing next month, it's, you definitely aren't kicking yourself through the whole thing. It's a totally different beast. All right. Well, just to give our listeners a little heads up, I guess, uh, which we don't often don't get an opportunity to do, we're going to cover 1932's Rain with Joan Crawford. So, yeah, uh, Lydia, uh, pretty much, uh, she saw this and sent me an email. They're going, "This is incredible." <laughs> uh, so, I, I will. I don't want to set anybody up. It's one of those that you watch it, and you're just going. What? What? <laughs> I think two or right. three times during that movie, I went, "What? <laughs> whoa!" You know, so uh, you know, definitely worth. I think whoa in a positive way, even though it's not exactly a uh, chipper family afternoon kind of movie. <laughs> oh, perfect, it is Joan Crawford. <laughs> it'll, it'll 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 just be perfect for right after the holidays. It then, will. Right? <laughs> Actually, yeah, it'll it'll be an interesting one to to look over in January. Yeah, excellent. Uh, uh, with that, I guess we should close it out. Uh, this will come out just prior to the Christmas holiday. To so to all our Christmas celebrators, uh, Merry Christmas to you. Uh, happy we'll holidays. just we have just done Hanukkah, so I hope everyone had a happy Hanukkah. <laughs> uh, I'm not exactly sure when Kwanzaa and everything else is, but if, you know, whenever that is, I, I certainly wish you a happy In one. Ramadan. Of those. <laughs> Well, this is going to take us forever. Happy holidays. <laughs> Absolutely. And certainly have a, a fun and safe new year. And we are certainly looking forward to coming back in 2016 with some more fun films. And uh, yet, of course, the YouTube channel is the perfect place for you to keep up on what we're going to be watching because I will post the movie usually a week or two uh, ahead of the podcast so you guys get a chance to watch the film before you hear us uh Love on it or uh, tear it apart. On that note. I think, and on this one, we did both. We did. (laughs) On that note, I'm going to really strongly encourage you, our listeners, to to watch this next movie before we discuss it. Because I I feel strongly that it's, that once we start talking about it, if you haven't seen it, you need to to see it before you listen to us talk about it. (laughs) Yep. And that, of course, will be uh, emphasized on our Facebook page. Yes. So all the places where you need to go to stay to keep up on this stuff. And uh, so that's going to do it. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Lydia, this was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, for me too, Christopher. And we will see you all next time. Bye. Bye.